The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series of that name and watching Amazon's upcoming Wheel of Time TV show. I am Caleb Wimble and with me are Katie Jarvis, <laughs> Dan Katinsky, hey everyone, and Keely Frank. Hello. You can find us at wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 at the Two Rivers tier helps. To those of us who have joined us at the $5 Tarvalon tier, you will, by the time you hear this episode, be getting access to our first special bonus episode, where in this case we talk about Dune Part 1, Denis Villeneuve's new adaptation of Dune, the history of the uh, attempts to film it and the novel itself, and in the future we'll be talking about other things, like we time short stories, graphic novels, video games, failed TV pilots, and more. If you want to get access to that episode, you can do so now immediately by subscribing at the Tower Volunteer. It's a fun time. Email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at wattcast.net with the subject line questions. We will answer them here on the show. For those unfamiliar, The Wheel of Time is an epic fantasy story about five small town teens learning to be functional adults as they each enter their own magical puberty metaphors. Last time we talked about chapters 21 to 25 of the first book in the series, The Eye of the World. We saw the separated party fleeing Shadow Spawn, finding refuge with the traveling folk, the Tinkers, also called the Tuatha'an, and attempting to find one another on the twisting road to Camelin, the capital of Andor. This episode, we're digging into chapters 26 to 30, where the chase picks up speed and enemies appear to be closing in on all sides. Keely, what happens in chapter 26, White Bridge, loosely? speaking? Yeah, so the boat that they're on, the Spray, arrives in White Bridge, which is um, named after the giant bridge that they talk about a lot, <laughs> spanning through it. <laughs> the Captain Bale tries to convince Tom that he should stay on because people will love a Gleeman wherever he goes, um, but Tom wants uh, to take Rand and Matt Camelin and thinks that they'll probably help, um, and then they end up speaking an innkeeper, um, can't read my thought it down, uh, and they learn that this false dragon Loghain guy can apparently channel the one power or at least is, is saying that he can uh, but that supposedly he's been captured by the Aes Sedai um, Tom kind of gives a little bit more context for himself explaining that he had a nephew who was killed by Aes Sedai and so that's why he's kind of like latched on to uh, Rand and the others um, Rand, they don't really talk about it that much but Rand kind of assumes that there's probably only one reason that would happen um, and then a Murdral shows up and attacks the three while they're in the streets and Tom tells them basically like run away Way, I'll handle this, and then supposedly Tom dies off screen. Has his fly you fools moment uh, on on the bridge of Khazad Doom here. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's a lot of time spent describing this bridge from the Age of Legends. <laughs> Although, weirdly enough, I feel like we get a much better description to me, a much more evocative, short, and beautiful description of this place 
in a few chapters later from a Nynaeve's perspective, um, which almost makes me wonder from a craft point if Jordan wrote that chapter first as the introduction to White Bridge, and then he realized, oh, no, wait, I want to write an earlier chapter from Rand and Matt's perspective coming in. So it's kind of, this one feels a little more functional to me and goes on for a good while. Uh, and it's a lot more of, you know, learning what's going on in the wider world and things that we're not privy to. Like there's been this whole ongoing war we've been hearing about with this new self-proclaimed dragon, Loghain, who's incapable of performing these incredible feats of power, but has now apparently been captured off screen. <laughs> so um, I guess we'll find out what happens with him. If I'm if I'm going to guess from the trailers, we're going to be seeing a lot more of what's actually been going on with him be- rather than just hearing it secondhand on the TV show. Uh, unless, um, I, I don't know if anybody else had that impression from the scenes we saw. Um, what, what do we think about this chapter otherwise? I felt this was really the first time that I fully understood that Tom was kind of like not only protecting the kids, but going against the Aes Sedai and like sort of not. Mm. I, I don't think I understood until this point that he really was guiding them away from getting to Tarvalon um, and mm. really telling them to like fully disregard what the Aes Sedai had told them to do. So I thought that was interesting for me. I was like, oh, okay. And then we get some of the reason why. Like he was the one who kept the boys from sharing their dreams with Mm -hmm. Moraine before. Like he thought it would be really dangerous to tell her, right? Yeah. So that was like a hint, but this was just more direct. Um, And I was like, oh, okay. So he really doesn't want them to, to kind of get in the mix with the Aes Sedai. And I, I wonder like if, if everyone else fully understood what, what the reason would be that his, was it his cousin or? His nephew, I think, who seems kind of like an adoptive son to him almost. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, I felt like, oh, it had to be that he was somehow channeling the one power and the Aes Sedai Mm -hmm. had to put a stop to him or perhaps they tried to help him even and he put an end to himself. So I thought it was interesting that he has kind of a black and white telling of it, like that that his nephew is the victim and the Aes Sedai are are clearly Mm -hmm. the demonic force and I feel like as the reader I'm like "Mm, I'm not sure if that's exactly true he even leaves a little wiggle room in the telling I think because he said he sort of phrases it like they would not say they killed him but he died because of them kind of or something like that um, to that effect because we really don't know what the Aes Sedai do or what the Red Aja specifically do with men who can channel right we just know that they take care of them (laughs) scare quotes in some way or another yeah, I'm not, I'm not buying, I don't know, something about the way, I feel like characters have such strong emotions towards different concepts of the world in the in the book, but like, I, I'm not buying into it as a reader, so some of that's not resonating. And that was like with Perrin as well, it's like characters feel so strongly about Aes Sedai and like all these other things that I'm just like, not really seeing the connections there or the rationale, like with Tom, I don't, they didn't really make that very explicit. And I feel like you think if they were traveling so long together, they would have like, like you, you think they would have like kind of picked up on that more or like Tom would have seen more of her point of view, but like everyone's so hostile to her, but they've been traveling with mm-hmm. her now for what seems like a little bit of time, but they still have like this really, like they all recoil. Well, she, but she won't tell them what she's ultimately about, right? She's so cryptic about everything she's planning and her intentions for them. I, I mean, she's she's protected them. But I don't I feel like she's given, she's not given a whole lot of reasons to be very trusting of her beyond that, especially given what she's, you know, she's repeatedly emphasized she's willing to kill them if it keeps them away from the dark one. It's true. It's just, I don't know, like the, the connection there just seems like hard for me to kind of like understand as the reader. I don't know if it's just so far removed from that scenario, but like that, that context makes sense. But we also know she's like helping them along. And as a reader, I have confidence in her. So it seems strange when everyone's like so against the Aes Sedai the whole, like, mm-hmm. the whole time. 
Is there uh, any way in which that is colored by we're coming to this book now with the context of the show and the trailers, despite it not being out yet? And, and the framing that we've talked about of Moraine being the main character and, you know, knowing in hindsight that she has like a whole book dedicated to her. I guess it's impossible to know whether these things like sort of color our perception to her as probably ultimately on, you know, a protagonist in a sense and, and um, somebody who is out for good in, in one form or another. Whereas I'm trying to remember, but it's been too long since the first time I came to Wheel of Time, whether she seemed still more not worth trusting. And like, and especially before we, like at this point where we don't really understand the, the Aes Sedai or what the different Ajas are and everything. Um, I don't know. It's uh, it's one of those. I don't know if it's that as much as like she plays into the trope of like the magical like wizard character mm. coming in and helping. They're, that it's such an established trope that I think that's more of the undoing. Is like show like we're we're so used to like the protector coming yeah. in and knowing so much more about the world and educating like the teenagers about like it. It's such an established character trope and it's always usually towards mm -hmm. the positive. It's not usually this character that betrays them. So I think the trope is actually or like the the normal like the per their persona of this character is like kind of undoing that hesitation that's fair um like you know the you've got of course gandalf as the the most famous trope codifier who or you know like a merlin who gandalf or merlin can be an enormous asshole and, and <laughs> not tell people things and use people as pawns in their plan but they're still ultimately you know they're going to be framed as on 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 the right side of the conflict one way or another um Tom does point out, though, that they that Matt and Rand really have not thought through what it means to just walk into Tar Valin alone and hand themselves over to the Omerlin seat and the fact that they don't even know what the Ajas are or how to tell them uh, from one another. So he's trying to uh, convince them out of that. They get some coins back from Bail Doman, I guess, as a side note related to Moraine, but they don't get the coin that Moraine gave either of them uh, among that. So so we don't have that tracker Anything else we should cover in this chapter before moving on? Um, I wrote down two things. One, I said uh, Gelb is definitely going to be an issue. So he's mm, oh, yeah. he's the like deckhand or whatever <laughs> that I think didn't Rand like land on him and he, yeah. like he was supposed to be keeping watch. Um, the fact that they made such a big deal about his character and then it's like oh well he just you know ran away when the when they told him like you don't have a job anymore. It's like okay he's gonna come back later and fuck everything up. Um, and, and he already started to at the end when he showed up again. Yeah, and then um, so. They talk about a crazy man or like there's some kind of crazy dude in this uh chapter mm. in this episode in this chapter. Um and I just assume that it was the Pad and Fane guy again because mm. that's like the only character that they've described as like oh, it was when they were asking the the innkeeper or someone like who else has come through here and he yeah. said some dude asking after the kids. I just assume that that's him. Um because who uh, else would have been here, right? Yeah. Right. We have no other context, so I just kind of assume that it's him. Um and then I have a hard time believing that that if Loghain was actually captured, you know, barely halfway through the first book, that it wasn't intentional or mm. that he doesn't have like something else going on. Like, oh, you know, here's a bajillion page series and this only real bad guy that you know about just happens to be captured. <laughs> there wouldn't be a need for many more books beyond that if that was kind of... <laughs> end all so i have a feeling that there's that was planned did anyone else get i i agree with that did anyone else get like a little like i don't know the way jordan writes i get a little tired when he ever goes to a new location because it's like so much description like new characters introduced constantly mm. so when they got to white bridge i was just like set up for another end scene i'm like this is gonna be like the 20th one we've had in this <laughs> book already um yeah so so happy there that they moved along quickly but at the same time i feel like he spent so much time in like in descriptions that like when they finally get to like that big reveal at the end 
again where he gets stabbed. I don't know, like these like Nazgul like creatures, the the Midroll or whatever. I'm I'm not sure. Like, did they know that it was like were, were they going to actually come up to them? Like, why did they have to expose themselves in the crowd? I, I don't feel like think I get that scene. Like, it was, Tom just it was closing in on them. They couldn't get away from it. It was. But how like does it? How does it know? Does it just, is it like this magical scent that we haven't really been told as a reader? Or like, it's is it because like the dream connection? Like, how do these Midroll know? Like, they just kind of gravitate towards them, and is it because of, like their energy they're producing or something? We've had Lance say something like they can they can taste or smell uh, where, where where their prey are that they're tracking, which is very Nazgul. Like again, the Nazgul are they left this out in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, but kept it in Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings that the Nazgul are sniffing all the time and like getting down on all fours and like smelling the ground and then tasting the air and all. They're they're just exact Merdral are doing exactly the same thing as as far as. I can tell from from what Land said that once they once they know what you taste like, they can uh, nearby keep honing in on you on the wind, something like that. But how okay. did they know? <laughs> yeah. Like, did did Logan or you know whoever is this massive power? Did he like take a piece of Rand's shirt in a dream and then like give it to like? How did they know? The, like, oh, they've met this merger all before in in the inn in Berlin. It 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 disappeared into the shadows when. Is this the same one uh, though? Because they keep saying merger are stationed at every city like how is this one yeah. like always like right where they're at like I'm, I'm always like wondering if there's like a spy amongst their midst amongst the yeah, boys if it's like the dream connection because i'm like these guys are literally and even matt's like on edge in the alleyway because he's like feeling like no matter where they look they're constantly being like honed in and the, the mm-hmm. villain's feeling a little op right now i'm like is there no constraint in terms of like how this villain or antagonist gets around and finds them so quickly where no matter where they are mm-hmm. and can see through as we're seeing more of in these chapters all sorts of different animals and just like basically as this vast mind network all over the place between human dark friends, animals that serve the dark one, Murdral who have all these powers and can slink around in the shadow, like teleport between shadows seemingly. Uh, uh, they can just move from one to another. Yeah, it is. It is, uh, And it, it's interesting you say OP because at the, at the same time, I, I have felt in earlier chapters like we were killing Charlocks almost too easily and too readily when they showed up to where it was starting to undermine their threat a bit that even these kids who have no idea how to fight like can sort of accidentally lop their way through a few yeah. of them in, in these battles a lot of the time and then you just have to slaughter loads of them and and of course you know it leads up to the merge all being way more powerful but Lan's already beheaded one of those right and he's like oh we still have to run it takes them a whole day to die after you cut their head off <laughs> so we we need to get out of here it's going to keep fighting and, and and killing um but yeah maybe they maybe they share uh information or have some way of like that the merge all all telepathically communicate i'm actually not sure at this point i've forgotten the mechanics and we still haven't met the drag car right who's been flying around stalking them up in the clouds at night so well i guess dan do you want to tell us what happens in chapter 27 chapter shelter from the storm sure so Egwin dances with the tuathon is that how you pronounce it i i wasn't here for the last time with the discussion of the how you something like that yeah the, i think the, we're, the, we're, the ro- we're just all butchering our way through it yeah the, the people <laughs> the leaf um and then perrin has this dream of beelzeman and the wolves um where beelzeman visits him and he hasn't been getting he hasn't been having visitations from beelzeman because of the wolves recently but it seems like whatever barrier was there because because of the wolves now being torn down um and the wolves are murdered in this dream and it's like this agonizing experience for him he awakes mm. and then El- elias who's up to this point has been telling him he's he has a hunch or something that is keeping him from wanting to leave this camp finally decides it's time to leave uh, and they depart the tinkers after a pretty long farewell to the villagers i in the chapters that we read this week, I was really enjoying the parent sections for some reason. I'm not like I was trying to put yeah. my finger on why I'm not really sure. It's not 
it's not like I'm so particularly drawn to Perrin's point of view, but um, I don't know. I, I just felt like they read a little more easily. There was more interesting components and I would, I would kind of be like, oh, I'm excited when another one comes along. So I thought that was interesting. Um, I also noticed in this section, I think Caleb had pointed out last week that um, they're always thinking that another one of their friends is better with girls. And so in this mm-hmm. one, Perrin's like, oh, Rand would have known what to do. I, yeah. I just thought that was funny. Um, yeah, but but I was like, okay, this section, it was a shorter chapter, but it read really fast to me. And I, I was kind yeah. of interested in this this world that they're in. And maybe it's the wolves or I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but I was liking the pairing chapters this week. Did anyone else feel that way? Definitely more than the last set for me. Yeah. I thought this this was a really, ex- maybe partly there's so much going on, but yeah, the world building too, like you say, and finding out about the the Wolf Brothers stuff and all and all that in, in the pack. It's an interesting, and um, I'm, feels like we're doing more emotional character development in, in yeah. this, like the the getting to know the Tuathan so briefly and then still having this very meaningful farewell. And Elias, despite that we've only known him a couple chapters, I feel like he we know much more about him emotionally than we do like Land, for instance, who is all stoic and, and I'm, I'm just the the you know the the silent defender here type thing um but feeling more of i've i've compared them to to the split halves of strider and aragorn but mm-hmm. I, but i really like um the elias encounters throughout here too as abrasive and prickly as, as he is I, I think he's an interesting well yeah it's just it's just an interesting part of the journey i agree did anyone think it was odd that his character who is so abrasive and hates at least it seemed pretty obviously established by himself in the prior chapters that he doesn't like people being around other people he likes being like almost mm-hmm. a nomadic like solo adventure suddenly wants to stay in this camp and like i don't know i found that frustrating <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. baron wants to leave and this guy's like let's sit around he's all happy and i, I get there's like some kind of magic at work that's pulling both his him and Egwin to stay and be part of the camp. I'm like, they constantly seem to be staying a lot longer in locations than they should. And Perrin seemed to be the mm-hmm. only one that had a problem with that. And I'm like, you guys are all like, your friends are like p- potentially dead. You're being chased by these Trollocs. But then there always seems to be these lulls in their adventure where they just like chill in a place for a while. And to me, it's getting frustrating. I'm like, this is like a cyclical pattern with like the pacing of the story. And I'm like, yeah, you keep taking breaks and it somehow is allowed. And then you wait till the last moment when you have to, it's like almost a procrastination on a college assignment because it's like, they keep repeating that cycle of like waiting till the last minute to do something and then they have to like scurry mm-hmm. out because like their dreams are getting like burned or something like they they never take advantage of any of the lulls they have yeah i wrote down uh like my first note for this chapter is it seems counterintuitive with a group that makes so much noise <laughs> like <laughs> that you're traveling with them when you're trying like the whole build-up was like oh you have to be quiet we have to zigzag through the mm-hmm. woods don't step on a yep. freaking leaf because they're gonna hear you and then now it's just like oh you know he said it's rare to see someone not playing an instrument or not singing and then they have this yeah. whole like freaking weird dance scene and so that made me wonder like is that just a total oversight <laughs> by Jordan or yeah. was is he implying that like this group of people are so mm-hmm. the outsider that even like the most evil being in the universe wouldn't think to look at them to find who they're looking for like are they hiding in plain sight mm-hmm. or are they being followed like it just I don't know we just established that they couldn't because the merge all finds them in the city even though they've given no indication <laughs> that they're there so it's like one minute this thing gravitates toward them with even though they just literally got into disguises and the next minute they're with this traveling group to your point Gilly's like they're playing music they literally have like red wagons and like really brightly lit <laughs> decorations and all right. that like yeah, they, they, they are use that in the description yeah so it's like they're they're almost like these nomadic like musicians and then they're so loud and yet they decide to camp with them for several days so I don't know 
all of this seems a little counterintuitive to like, and almost to the power structures you're you're defining, Caleb. He never seems to know if he wants to tell this like really quick pacing of like them fleeing this like really mm-hmm. terrible enemy, or if the enemy is not that bad and they can kind of lull and have like down moments. It's like I don't know. Well, he- oh, oh, well, I have a couple thoughts thoughts on it. The first is that just that one. That's the genre, right? That's high fantasy. That's like that. These are. The tropes established in questing stories since long before Tolkien even. This this is the way that the fantasy travelogue goes. Even when you're fleeing from some great evil or towards when you find these places of refuge along the way. And the question is whether it turns out to be a true place of refuge or if it's a place where evil is lurking behind the corner. And that, and you know, is this, uh, you, you think of like even all the way back to the journey of Odysseus, like a lot of the refuges that it, it comes into come with a huge catch where uh you know oh there's refuge among the lotus eaters but you're going to lose your mind to the to the bliss and pleasures here or there's refuge among there's refuge with uh what's her name the the enchantress who takes him in but also then she sort of makes odysseus her sex slave uh for a long time there or they uh they find refuge on that island of, that turns out to have a cyclops and they have to find a way to escape and get on to the next part and all of lord of the rings is that uh, of course the um going between i mean i'm I, I, you know, totally fine taste-wise not not to like it and to find that it's not quite working in this passage. The only thing I would push back against or or confirm is that I think it has to be very intentional, very, very deliberate that the Tuathon are so conspicuous. Like, they, it's pointed out so many times. They wear the loudest clothing possible. They dance, like, nonstop. They, they sing and make all this noise. Like you pointed out, Keely, um, there's the the mentions that both Elias and, and is it Perrin or Egwene who feels like that there's something, some reason they should stay with them? like something protective so i do wonder if it is there there's a couple different real real world um mythical traditions where you have these figures who um are they they are like laid bare to the gods or to the world of magic or whatever they dress in like a really out like a conspicuous way they show themselves and they they make all this noise in a way that like maybe lets them hide in plain sight it it, uh, and and where the i can't fault the evil eye can't follow them that's kind of what i interpret is sort of going on here but it sure does feel convenient like you said dan uh it it sure does feel like there's a narrative convenience to well there's just a magical reason we can rest here for now so uh, it's in safety so we get to know uh who these folks are i felt like the continuous reminder of like you know we'll know when we have to leave and like i'm i'm trying to keep sensing for it that we sort of get from Mm -hmm. elias that was like maybe jordan trying to deal with that fact like yeah 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 guys i know i know like (laughs) that we're loud here and we're not really hiding and we're kind of having Uh a good time um, yeah, so I, I sort of felt like that repetition was a, a little bit him addressing that. Um, I also had to bring up the ending of the section uh, back to our gender, gender <laughs> issues where um, Egwene is talking with Ela and, you know, and parents like, what are you guys always talking about? And, and he says, advice, nobody tells us how to be men. We just are. And Egwene says Ela uh, was giving her advice on being yeah, a woman. Yeah, yeah, right? being yeah. a woman. And he's like, why do you need that? Um, and then she says, that's probably why you make such a bad job of it. I'm like, yeah, okay. I, I feel like we kept get, getting these little funny little <laughs> like snippets of dialogue or sections where it's it's just kind of like, okay, here we are again. <laughs> yeah, that and like, yeah, the comments on like womanhood and all that and the gender politics. And also, did anyone pick up on, I think it was in this chapter, he literally almost like makes a comment, like an introspective comment about like he writes all these innkeepers and then he's also very mean to them about being like fat and losing their hair was like literally the description 
prescription for ah, it's like okay yeah. <laughs> okay like do you do you really have to like like it's like brand think he's like wondering if every innkeeper is like fat and balding and it's like it's such mm-hmm. a harsh description i'm just like okay like <laughs> this is kind of terrible but I guess this is how Jordan's going to write every single innkeeper and he's going to like really make a comment on their way to like, it just seemed really mean. Yeah. It seems we're still so far embedded in those uh, even like Elizabethan era tropes, like in Shakespeare where, where the, the like fat people are, are stumbling and incompetent or, or something, something like that. And we, then we also get the other Shakespeare stereotype in uh, one of these later chapters where being too thin and gaunt looking is a sign of like, like uh, another kind of, like that's more rapacious evil. And Jan Cassius has a lean and hungry look about him. We will uh, be shortly introduced to the Lord um, White Cloak Bornhold or the Lord Commander Bornhold with a description that felt straight out of Julius Caesar in that sense. So yeah, yeah, lots of that, uh, more, more stuff about like people's appearances being tied to intrinsic personality qualities about them in in a way people have been doing since uh, time immemorial. Katie, do you want to summarize what happens in chapter 28, Footprints in Air? Sure. Um, So in this chapter, uh, Nynaeve, Moraine, and Lan arrive in Whitebridge, just missing their companions. um, And they learn of the Mydral. Lan tries to send Nynaeve home before she gets hurt. Nynaeve refuses, which... I did think was a touch confusing because we had gotten the previous information that Nynaeve really needed to make it to Tarvalon in order to, um, you know, not be killed by the one power that is potentially brewing inside of her. Oh, that's that's a Gawain. We learned Nynaeve is actually one of the rare ones who figured out how to be safe with it. She she has like a measure of control. Okay, so since she has that, it's kind of fine and she doesn't necessarily have to make the journey. I, I guess I maybe didn't quite understand that. Well, Moraine certainly is indicates that she's going to make sure Nynaeve makes that journey one way or another. But yeah, it's um, that that was I think the the that first chapter we got from Nynaeve's perspective. Moraine sort of explained to her, "You have figured out a way to control and keep yourself safe from the power and use it in limited wisdom like ways to, to hear the wind." But and, and so Egwene, uh, Nynaeve is like, "Well, I'll just do the same for Egwene. It's fine." And 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 Moraine's like, "No, she's on. She's definitely going to die. That like almost nobody can do that. And if you don't let me get her there, she she will die." of this, this one power burnout, this, this fever that happens. And so it's kind of just like a slight tension between Lan and Moraine on that, like on, on Nynaeve's. It's not, it's not a contradiction, maybe just a little tension. Let's see what else happens. Well, Moraine hints that she's going to take Nynaeve to the White Tower, whether she wants to go or not. Yeah, I, I think that this chapter, I was still a little bit irritated by um, Nynaeve's sort of just dislike for the companions she's traveling with. But I guess that that's mm. her opinion and she's entitled to it. <laughs> she feels very strongly that the power was a filthy thing we get in her internal monologue. She would have nothing to do with it unless she had to, which she's a real, she is a person of interesting contrast I'm finding here. And she is, um, She's often she's often at war with her own wants, like her, you know, these conflicting things that she wants to achieve, her goals, her uh, her sense of duty. She's principled, but I think in some ways her morality is shown to be as utilitarian as Moraine's kind of ironically, like like that Nynaeve is often hating Moraine for for thinking and saying things that Nynaeve herself sort of thinks in the exact same way and, and makes her plans in the same way. Yeah, like is it yeah. in this chapter that Nynaeve 
uh, like thinks to herself, like, well, I don't want to do this, but I'll go to Tarvalon if it means I can learn how to kill you or something. <laughs> like, yep, I remember yep. that happening in one of the chapters. And I was like, okay, that's convenient for you. <laughs> we do find out that um, you, Moraine, talking to Nynaeve, can do nothing with the one power when emotion rules your mind. So she's supposed to like learn how to quiet her mind and control her temper at Tarvalon. Um, we do get some interesting line of thought from here that from Nynaeve, if only there was some way to get rid of the woman, meaning Moraine, Lan would be better by himself. A warder should be able to handle what was needed, she told herself hastily, feeling a sudden flush. No other reason, but one meant the other. Uh, and, and yet, Lan made her even more furious than Moraine. She could not understand how he managed to get under her skin so easily. He, uh, he rarely said anything, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if it was a duel, she had not managed to score once, and Moraine did not even seem to realize she was in a fight. Um... So we're certainly getting some uh, some hints of the way that Nynaeve is feeling about Lan at some level. They've had an interesting like little back and forth with the whole, they spent like the interaction, both of them, about the tracking, I think, first. Like she constantly was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, like she was proud of the fact he had trouble noticing the tracks or that she could follow them in the place. He sort of complimented her there, or at least surprised. And then like later too, when he didn't like sense her right away and Maureen was the one who kind of sputtered when she was eavesdropping. She was like proud of that. And then she was also hoping he had trouble finding her horse when he was like fetching it because he's like i hid my horse really well so it's like this like constant like mm-hmm. trying to get like uh like one up him in terms of like her skill set and i i don't know proving herself with uh land but she's always like she has this like low-key competition with him and then this hatred for marine mm-hmm. yeah sorry to constantly be comparing everything in the world to lord of the rings apparently the only only book or movie i've ever read or seen but I but I am getting the, those like friendly um uh the the gim the Gimli and Legolas vibes of their their constant like uh, initially subtle and then by the second movie just like allowed like like they're competing <laughs> with each other and their display of martial skills and arts and everything which it, for them is played up as bromance but uh, I think I think here we're getting more hints that Nineteen feels a, a, a certain way about Lan um, that puts this in the context of maybe kind of a flirtatious banter, even if she doesn't doesn't verbalize that entirely. Uh, and again, we get her, we get her descriptions of the bridge here, which I thought were so. Th- this gave me a much better and more evocative picture of the white bridge, the actual um, structure. And this is me getting into the writerly thing again, where, where she's talking about if lace was made of glass, it would look like this. Um, and and describing the slick surface and the way it looks like it's going to collapse in on itself at any time. I got a much more vivid picture of the whole city here from Nani's perspective. When she, even when she talks about like walking around the piles of blackened timbers, the the men in poorly fitting red uniforms and tarnished armor patrolled the streets, but they marched quickly as if afraid of finding anything. It just seemed like a much better written chapter than the last introduction to Whitebridge to me, getting it from her perspective. Um, we see Moraine giving sympathy, showing sympathy to these people, and to Nynaeve's surprise, it appeared genuine. So maybe Moraine is not quite as hard as and, and unfeeling as Nynaeve has believed. Um, Everybody's reticent to talk about what went down, and uh, yeah, they, uh, they 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 blame some of it on me, that maybe there was a man in town using the one power. It was time to have the Aes Sedai in, let the Red Aja settle matters. Anything else we need to get to in this chapter? Um, was it in this chapter where someone was talking about like, well, what about my friends? Or like they bring up Egwene and Maureen's like, meh. Like it, I, was it this? Ch- <laughs> I wrote down Maureen as being weird about Egwene, but I didn't give myself any context. And so I think that's what yes. I was referring to. The, the last page, is that what you're talking about? The I want to find the boys too, Nynaeve said, but what about Egwene? That yeah, conversation? That must mm-hmm. be it then. Because <laughs> it's the last thing I wrote, but I didn't give myself why I wrote that. But that, that's probably it that she like, is writing her off, or at least that's how it feels. I wasn't sure how to read this because 
Moraine sort of seems like suddenly angry, like her eyes are are, are almost glowing for a moment at the mention of Egwene, and her back stiffened, yeah. and... Uh, oh, no, wait, no, that's Nynaeve, uh, Nynaeve feeling that anger, and... Uh, oh, and Moraine is cold again. Okay, that makes more sense. I hope to find Egwene alive and well, too. I do not easily give up on young women with that much ability once I have found them, but it will be as the wheel weaves. Yeah, it did, it did seem like she is kind of, uh, you know, like doing that triage thing she always does and deciding that Egwene is a lower priority uh, than... Uh, the other two boys that she's currently able to track, maybe. So maybe they'll talk about this more, but like how much influence do they have over this uh, the concept of the wheel? Because, <laughs> you know, Maureen is always like, oh, well, if it happens, it fucking happens. But like she is making deliberate choices. So either she knows what's supposed to happen until like the end of time or mm-hmm. she's just like, meh, fuck it. And so it just it feels like until I guess I have a firm understanding of that, that it, it feels kind of like lazy to me where like I even got that with Elias where he was like, well, we'll leave when we leave. Like it'll what yeah. happens will happen. And so it's like, are they playing into something they know and they're just not really explaining how they know or like, what is that? It d- definitely feels like a lottery system. Sometimes it's like it's what the mm. like the wheels already like set in motion and everything. And then other moments, very executive decisions are made. So it's just like sometimes they're like, ah, well, it's already like written in stone or whatever. It's like what's happened ha- has mm-hmm. happened. And they almost was it land questioning about that, too. Like one, there's a couple of characters who are like, is this written already or is this like kind of set in motion? So it's like they question it, but there doesn't mm-hmm. somehow to your point, Keely, it's like they some some characters seem to know the flow and like accept it. And other things are changing but it doesn't really clear line. Moraine sort of has a line uh, that seems to indicate that she can see to some limited extent, or she says something like, and I don't have the quote in front of me, something like, um, even I can only see the potential weaves coming out of the pattern. And once they are woven, they are woven, that sort of thing. That That's kind of the impression I get that she hints at being able to see potential futures in some uh, l- some limited way and almost like she's like pooling on different threads trying to make certain things happen. But once it's actually, once that thread is woven into the pattern, whether that's literal whether or, or you know, like a, uh, a, a metaphor for whatever is going on with the Wheel of Time, which we still don't know if that even that is literal or metaphorical. That, yeah, once it has happened that it can't be changed and then she just like fully accepts things and moves along. But I do think we've gotten a couple hints that she, she is capable in some way of manipulating or attempting to manipulate in the future which paths things go down. I, I was getting a Dune-like sense there. Like, it, mm-hmm. it seems like a more... Um, it's like a more metaphorical way to speak about what like Paul Atreides' visions sort of show him in that he can't yeah. he can't necessarily see exactly what's going to happen and he can't necessarily change it, but he does get some kind of insight that guides him and it, it sort of feels like that to me. And yeah. that by even, you know, the inevitable can see the future thing where by doing something to change it or affect it, you are putting yourself in the pattern and that's changing the way things go. So you've changed the vision that you had in, in the first place or what the future might have been if you didn't interact. Yeah, real real tangled. Um, but I don't think, uh, yeah, we, we still don't know very much at this point about how any of that works in a metaphysical sense in this world. Yeah, so to me, I guess I'm like fighting with like, okay, so is she kind of like a Doctor Strange character where like she knows mm-hmm. how it's supposed to go? Or is this like the timekeepers and they're, you know, like bigger forces are constantly trying to prevent certain things from happening? Or is it just yeah. that like she's kind kind of psychic and so like you said like without trying to influence things if she knows what's happening things are going to get influenced Mm -hmm. well we move 
beyond Moraine's sight for the moment uh, into Chapter 9, Eyes Without Pity. Elia sneaks Perrin and Egwene across the, these long, rolling, hilly glassland, grasslands where they barely avoid notice by a truly massive flock of ravens, which at one point we see very uh, grisly end that they, they bring to a poor fox uh, who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They just sort of peck and eat, eat him alive in a matter of minutes. Perrin is finding that he can hear and feel the wolves even at a distance. The trio find running from the, they're at first sneaking and then at the last minute like breaking, running when they have to cross a hill to get away from these swarms of ravens into uh, a shelter of sorts, a steading. Uh, they, they like cross this line and suddenly the, the ravens cannot follow. It's a place where the one power cannot touch and where the shadow's creatures fear to come. And Egwene feels a sudden sense of loss of something as they enter into it. And even Perrin feels that something is different and, and this chill that he experiences as passing into it. Um, so, uh, you know, once again, Fellowship of the Ring thing. We have Saruman swarms of crows uh, sublimated into here, a swarm of ravens from which the party must hide. But here, they're not just like out spying. They're also capable of, of tearing you to pieces if they, <laughs> if they happen down to you, like the thousand some ravens described in here. Mostly an action scene. What do y'all think? Yeah, I really like this one. I like the idea of them like not thinking to look up. Like Elias like was hiding from something, looking for something, but he didn't know what. And then you realize it's these like groups of birds communicating and working as like an army. I thought that was really cool. Um, We'll definitely say though, like massive trigger warning for this chapter that there's really mm. graphic described animal violence, like death against animals, which that's just like really upsetting to me. Like <laughs> I work in a really dark field i see and hear about a lot of dark shit all the time animal stuff can't do so mm. <laughs> this part is was like probably the most upsetting that like the gore with animals and all that like it was it was cool to the concept of let's think about like monster movies right like the concept of that as a movie like you know the movie the birds and all that was really interesting mm -hmm. but i don't want to see it that's fair that's a good reminder to me that i should put that one that warning on for this episode uh at the at the top or in the show notes Dan is going to uh, step off uh, for a moment, and we'll we'll wrap up this set of chapters here. Katie and Keely, uh, any other thoughts on? Again, it's like um, so. Yeah, we get we get the gruesomeness that you just described, Keely. Um, we get a we get a, a fear is the mind killer type line, uh, or at least it's fear will yeah. kill you if you don't control it from from Elias to Perrin. Um, oh God, yeah, there I I highlighted a few of the particularly nasty descriptions of the ra ravens. There there's a line about them seething like maggots on the hill at one point. Yeah, yeah. this is this is a the, maybe the most gruesome chapter we've had in terms of the graphic nature of the violence here um, and how dark things get. Um, we get Perrin struggling a lot with the wolf thing and how he feels it's yeah. like this curse that he feels like he's tainted maybe by the dark ones taint he says the the light the light blind me curse with this thing like sort of conceptualizing it in this like dirty kind of um folklore way i feel like the way that you know werewolves or vampires were traditionally thought of and being this like unholy creature doing something wrong with animals but as everybody has pointed out on the show at one point or another this version of it like he's not like literally elias is not literally he's a werewolf in the in the mythical the mythological sense but he's not literally turning into like a monstrous uncontrollable wolf he's a he's a dude who has like a lot of wolf-like qualities and can communicate with them which is kind of just way cooler in a lot of ways and he has yeah. a lot of control over it so it's hard to like really now in a modern mindset to feel like i got parent what's your problem this is, this is an awesome ability like like folks have said it's not like but he has this very 
deeply kind of um, almost religious uh, sense of, of uncleanness to the whole thing and, and the aversion that he feels to it. He feels like almost violated by this thing that's happening to him. I thought it was interesting how he feels like Egwene maybe, I can't remember if it's this chapter or the following chapter, but he kind of talks about how like, will Egwene judge him or does she even know him anymore um, now that he has this wolf connection? Mm-hmm. Which I thought was interesting because Perrin is aware of Egwene's connection to the one power, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he told, yeah. yeah, he is. Yeah. So I, I'm like, well, come on now. You guys have all got these like weird things going on. I mean, I know yeah. there was like the scenes of Rand eavesdropping. So maybe mm-hmm. Perrin is less aware, but I thought he was still aware. Oh, right. Because of the fire scene. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He caught yeah. her. Oh, caught right. Her yeah. From, uh, start, starting a fire with the power or trying to. Yeah. So I'm, I don't know. I was wondering why he would feel like so judged by him, but I guess it's like a whole identity mm-hmm. crisis thing going on for yeah. him. So we just have to kind of take it as, as this, you know, he thought he was one thing and now he is something else. And that can always mm-hmm. be a difficult transition. Um, and also, was it was it in this section where he has the kind of weird, um, like, uh, debate in his mind about whether or not he would be able to, like, use his axe on Egwene if he needed to because the, yeah, the crows yeah. were going to get her? And it would, I just thought that was strange. Uh-huh. That was, it was, that, that was jarring. Yeah, I was like, why are you even going there in your mind? But um, yeah. It felt like an intrusive thought to me almost for yeah. him as well. Uh, and then the way that he, and when, and then because at some point Elias senses that he's having that thought or feeling too. But it was, it was disturbing. You know, you're suddenly like, it's like, whoa, you do like suddenly, you're jumping very quickly to having to kill your friend here that you grew up with. Uh, uh, for, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of wondering like, is that one of those thoughts where, you know, you're walking down the street and out of nowhere your brain's like, you should kick that toddler into traffic. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah. is it one of those or was it supposed to be more of the, um, kind of like the pack mentality that, like you take down like the weakest link to keep mm. the pack going like i don't know if that's kind of what it was or if it was just supposed to be like a pretty in our face way of showing that like parent is changing mm. maybe both yeah i mean i, I made a jo- i made a, like a one-off joke at the beginning in the summary but I think this this set of chapters, it's become, uh, I have been conceptualizing what's going on in a way that did not occur to me as a child because I had not gone through adolescence yet when I started reading these books that these, the extent to which these teens, though they're much older than adolescents, are each changing in these, they're in a mental and physical way that is confusing and fearful and frightening to them uh, in a way that I'm really reading as like a, like this, like sort of second puberty metaphor this time around for the way that they're each going through it and they're each of their, each of them are changing in their own way, but the, and, and they know that the others are changing, but they still feel so yeah. private in their, 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 um, embarrassment and the, and the way that they feel dirty about what's happening to them, especially Perrin, um, or, or sick, like in the way that, you know, Matt, the, uh, or they're having all these physical things like Rand is getting these, these fever chills and being taken over by whatever this personality is. Matt is becoming sullen and, and the teenager that is like all dark and, and edgelordy and, and, and grim suddenly. I don't know that, that metaphor is coming across to me much, much more strongly on this read. It reminds, you know, so, something, there's a lot of story, supernatural stories in that vein, like something like Stephen King's Carrie, where, you know, like the, the experience of, uh, and that's a lot. And I know, sorry, Keely, I know you, you really have a lot of distaste for Stephen King, but, but across, like, I feel like monster fiction too, and fantasy oh, yeah. fiction, there's a mix of either becoming a monster as a metaphor for yeah. 
adolescence or, or, or gaining some sort of magical power or both in, in some way, which is happening to sort of all, all these characters here in a sense. I don't know. Am I, am I reading too much into it uh, if, I, if I read this one too many times or, or is that it's something anyone else picked up on? Just me, I guess. No, I, I think you're on track there. That, that makes sense to me. And especially I feel like you're probably getting even like a deeper dive into it because you can kind of compare it to the first time you read it, which is always a cool thing to be able to do. We need to wrap up pretty soon here, but getting through this chapter, we get, we get a lot more, uh, once again, more lore information we, we find in this setting, like a remnant of the kingdom of Ardor Hawking, or Ar- I've read the pronunciation Ardor Hawking before too, uh, who is, e- this is, I think the first point when I was reading the novel the first time that it clicked for me, besides like the obvious sort of Adam and Eve thing that we have described and and with Satan and all that about, you know, the beginning in a prior age and letting the dark one into the world, we get here a deliberate reference to real world mythology as having something literal in this world. This is Ar- Arthur Pendrag, or, 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 uh, which is, Ar- that's Arthur Pendrag and the, you know, King Arthur of Arthurian legend in, uh, in, in Kimrick history and, you know, like all, all the Arthurian legends we passed down the day. It's a totally different version of him here, but he's sort of doing the same thing as the High King who united all these lands um, in like 800 years ago or whenever this was, from the Great Blight to the Sea of Storms, from the Earth Ocean to the Aeol Waste, um, and then set about to build his own Camelot, like this perfect city that he was going to build on a setting of peace where neither the shadow nor the one power could enter because he also was like waged a massive war against the Aes Sedai. There's going to be a new city, not connected in any man's mind with any old cause or factional rivalry, a city of, of brotherliness, essentially, which is, you know, the Camelot uh, dream in the uh, the Arthur myths, which get, take a new form here, which I think this is maybe the point where it was meant to me, okay, there's something going on with the cycles here and something about like the way that these things are, are playing out in parallel to our own real history, maybe not real history, but our mythic history and our religious history playing out in, in, a, in a parallel way here. Um, we get reference to a 20 year siege of Tarvalin when like the Aes Sedai were all like hold up inside the tower before Arthur Hawking died because he died of something the Aes Sedai easily cured, could have cured, but uh, he was uh, not really into that and viciously opposed to them. Uh, and we get our last chapter 30, Children of Shadow, uh, which, uh, Keely, do you want to wrap us up on, on that one real quick? Yeah, sure. So they're in the setting. All of a sudden, writers kind of show up uh, and they talk about them as finally being the white cloaks again um that they're trying to like sneak around uh they spot perrin like him and Egwene had run away and tried to hide um and elias stayed away with wolf um they spot perrin then and uh he starts to feel the emotions of one of the wolves that's trying to defend them um and then perrin ends up that he either gets like hit in the head or he passes out um i don't know if he i think it says like he doesn't know if he actually got hit or if he's feeling the wolf get hit when he wakes up they are uh, in a tent and realize that they're a prisoner of the white cloak um elias has escaped they don't know where he is their perrin and Egwene are interrogated by uh captain bornhold who declares perrin is going to be executed for uh, mm. killing some of the white and uh, uh katie i think you need to run at this point uh so we'll we'll, we'll say farewell uh and and uh and catch you next time uh where can people find you on the internet since i forgot to ask dan before he was popping off you can find me at katiejarvis.com or uh, on Instagram at 30 in LA. And I'll see you guys next time. See you, Katie. Uh, and you can find Dan at Pansy Dan, spelled with a Z-Y, so P-A-N-Z-Y Dan at Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so yeah, just so uh, Keely and I will wrap this up together. Uh, as you said, Keely, this is where we're... We're getting uh, the White Cloaks back into the story in a much bigger way and capture, uh, capture 
and interrogation by we have um, kind of the, the hot headed young like zealot zealotous and kind of it, like frankly kind of stupid um, <laughs> uh, younger white cloak who is then butting up against the very I I found kind of like um, well conveyed intimidating um, yeah. Lord Captain Bornhold who both seems he is he has like a kind like he's got obviously experience and he has a realism about things and like a savviness about what actually went on here and despite all of uh the younger ones like you know he's like um bring all these exaggerations we were beset by 50 wolves and do- and dozens dozens of men and all that and and born holds like no i think this is how it went down i think uh you you're new to this and it's i understand how easy it is to get mixed up in the dark outside the city but this was a this was nothing quite that big um any sort of you know uh pieces parts of the truth out from from Egwene and from Perrin. uh but yeah i i found him like an immediately kind of compelling Villain, I would say, is is the way he feels like he's introduced here. We're definitely uh, we get the sense from Elias and Perrin uh, that you that you hinted at that they're that they smell a wrongness to the white cloaks that they smell kind of like rabid dogs, as as the wolves put it, which is apparently wolves can sense uh, religious zealotry and fundamentalism. (laughs) you know just that, like like dogs do of course you know that's definitely a, a real thing um but these these fantasy wolves have some other abilities here so i was wondering with that because the only other like being that they've really said the wolves have an opinion on are like trollop and the bad guys so i was wondering if that it was like foreshadowing that like the wolves mm. don't trust guys something is weird and is it mm-hmm. because they're like tainted like you know their whole thing is that they go against the dark one but is yeah. that not entirely true um and i kind of get that vibe with um bornhold who i did really like i like that they kept describing him almost as like a grandfather character um but he also i felt really anxious reading the whole section where he's basically summarizing parents fake story and pointing out every way that what he says Mm -hmm. further supports that he is a dark friend and that made me feel so anxious like nothing you say will be taken as like proof that you're not a dark friend because he's just going to twist it you're screwed and so I felt like so anxious for them, but that also kind of plays into how much power this guy has and how intimidating yep. he is. Um, it's almost a bit like the God. I, I have. It sounds like I have three points of, of nerd reference on this show, but the <laughs> um, the Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin scene in Star Wars, where he, where he's interrogating uh, Princess Leia mm-hmm. and getting the location of Dantooine before blowing up, and he has that sort of like uh, genial grandfatherly vibe, while also that that deep menace behind all of it that he can just you know casually turn around and order in Tarkin's case a mass murder at the end of it and in this case at the end you uh, just like casually oh yeah we're going to parents going to be executed and strung up for the whole city of Camelin to see uh, what happens to to dark friends though he still seems to hold out hope for Egwene being purified of uh of her connection to the dark which I didn't like at all I didn't like that he focused on her I know there's only two of them but I was also like mm-hmm. oh god what does that mean mm-hmm. <laughs> like what are they gonna do to this poor yeah. girl yeah um, but I did, I really like the dynamic between him and is it, he kept a child buyer. Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. His dynamic were like, clearly he's just the muscle. Um, mm-hmm. and he would like the buyer would try to speak up and then immediately be like, oh shit, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like I shouldn't have talked. Yep. Yep. And he'd be like, oh, you silly child. Like you think that's what happened. You're not a thief, are you? <laughs> so, uh, I just, I kind of like that dynamic of like constantly putting people in their place. Um, even in front of who are basically prisoners. 
I thought was really fun. Yeah, yeah. It's the um, you've got it's like the good cop, bad cop routine with the two of them, except it's like the 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 young, dumb, hot headed uh, cop and the uh, really chilling, experienced uh, <laughs> com- commissioner here who kn- or, or something who knows knows his way about this. And uh, yeah, I'm not surprised we're maybe creepy, picking up some creepy gender related vibes from the all male religiously fundamentalist paramilitary organization yeah. here potentially so that's disconcerting a lot of vibes of I've, I've probably referenced the crucible before but mm-hmm. certainly a lot a lot of they they feel like um a bunch of the villagers in that one the way maybe even the way they address each other is like child and brother and everything too it's it's that that sense yep uh here come here come the witch hunters here come the inquisitors who are going to, probably going to burn you at the stake whether you are or not um whatever that means because uh, because we I think we get seen very clearly here they do not really differentiate between Aes Sedai and and Shadow Spawn and Dark Friends it's just all you know he's like listing off the one two three like the points he's making about the, the parents connections to that parent is just admitted to to uh to the wolves who they also think of as being some of the Dark Ones creatures which you know to be fair, it's a little confusing keeping track about which animals are supposed to be evil in the, in this world, uh, which scavengers and which ones are uh, viciously opposed to the dark ones. So I'll, I'll I'll concede them on that one, not knowing the difference between ravens and wolves. Something I, I highlighted before all this went down, when when they were still with Elias uh, in this chapter, was. Um, about Perrin's axe and Perrin's um, the feelings he's having about violence and about about the axe itself, and he wants to get rid of it because he's feeling these like urges towards um, to, uh, these violent impulses that really sicken him, and he's also becoming maybe more like wolf predator like. Uh, but Elias catches his wrist as Perrin's about to throw the axe in a pool, and he says, uh, "You'll use it, boy, as long as you hate using it. You will use it more wisely than most men would. Wait, if you ever don't hate it any longer, that will be the time to throw it as far as you can and run the other way." And maybe this is not the most unique conversation in, in the history of high fantasy. Um, it's an interesting conversation in light of I feel like the way that we've already kind of had the sword the the, the that Rand has like fetishized a little bit in its its meaning from his father, but then the way that fantasy sort of fetish is weapons generally and is having and literally like as a fetish is having this like sacred power um but this had me thinking a lot about our cult- culture today and you know of course we live in america so i'm thinking about gun culture and and you know to some extent sword culture and, and the the pa- the passionate um hobbyist way in in which a lot of, a lot of americans think of weapons and 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 and, and collect truly devastatingly deadly weapons in in a way that is like giddy and fun and that's like the whole point of them and going down to you know and the, and the freedom to do whatever you want with them from your backyard and I'm, i don't want to say that's all weapon owners I've, i think that i've certainly known plenty who you know they take them very seriously or they think of you know like this is this gun is for hunting exclusively and needs to be very carefully locked up it's not a toy it's not meant to be fawned over in this way but i don't know this passage certainly had me um, reading as this uh, very different take from from the way that that uh, weapons are often fetishized in American culture and the notion that the moment you find yourself liking them, that you're talking about yourself as like a gun hobbyist, that's maybe the time where it should be worrying um, about your relationship with them, maybe. Yeah, I kind of got the same vibe. I was uh, thinking more of like uh, people that I knew in high school that like all they wanted was to like join the military or law enforcement or whatever. And then now, like I know people that are veterans and that have experienced these horrific things. And that it's kind of like that, you know, um, very in your face example of I think it's from is it from like World War One or something where it's it's the picture of the guy that shell shocked. Um, And it's just like, you know, once you start 
using it, if you find that you're enjoying what you're doing, mm -hmm. you need to get away. Because like, yeah. you know, the people that actually have to use it and see horrific thing, it changes mm -hmm. you and not in a good way, <laughs> you know? So yeah. like, uh, basically like the whole idea of like getting PTSD versus getting enjoyment out of it. And mm -hmm. it's, that's kind of what I was taking from what Elias was saying that like, you know, it's still kind of like, you can tell that he was influenced by uh, the traveler group that, you know, he mm -hmm. clearly had some relationship to them. He's not necessarily like promoting or condoning violence, but acknowledging that sometimes you have to do it. But if you're, you know, coming up on the side where this is fun for you and a game, then you're probably on the wrong side. And those are probably the people you need to watch out for, right? Most of the ones who, like you say, are like trying to, who, who dream of joining the police so for the purpose of being allowed to exercise yeah. deadly violence and having the right to to do it freely it's uh you brought i realized we glossed over the elias thing you just brought up when they were there's kind of an interesting uh moment in that chapter where they're mm -hmm. saying goodbye the twathon mm -hmm. and he um surprises them all shocks them all really by give it, doing like their religious liturgy about finding the song uh and and do it giving this like fare, farewell that he will keep looking for it for them so yeah it, does, it seems like his his relationship with the way of the leaf it is and with the tinkers is more complicated than yeah. he lets on or or uh, describes to Perrin and Egwene. Yeah, well, even like the day that they're leaving, uh, Ryan or whatever his name is, he mm -hmm. comes out and he's just looking at the sky and then looking at Elias like, I think we're going to leave too. Like they're clearly yep. both experiencing something. They have a respect for each other. And I think, you know, even when we first meet the the group, the Tuathane or however you say it, that they say <laughs> like Elias will always have a place. It's like, so mm. he had a place before there. Um, oh, that's how huh. I took it. That like he's a friend. He, he can leave, but he'll always be able to come back like that's kind of how i read mm. that um maybe that's wrong but that's how i interpreted it that like they have a mutual understanding of each other yeah um and so that's i feel like that's also why he like immediately took perrin and Egwene over to them yeah it's like i know that you know i can keep you kids safe here yeah some some part of him knows even if he won't admit it that it that it is that place of refuge any final thoughts on this chapter or, or the whole set of chapters um so question though when they the previous chapter they find the eye of arthur and then they're talking mm -hmm. about like the statue at first i didn't understand what they were talking about i thought that it was like they came upon a boulder that someone had like painted an eyeball on and it was like symbolic they were were they talking about the giant statue that they made of him that had like fallen and broken because then they were talking about hiding in his hand so was it like yeah yeah it was like an actual like piece of faith that's what they're talking I think, about yep like okay. they were standing around on on the lid of a carved eyeball in the ground and you could still okay. sort of see you could still sort of see the it's mostly worn away but you can kind of see the pupil in the middle or the the outline of the eye as like a big circle and in, in stone circle in the grass okay cool yeah because at first i was like what are, like is this supposed to be symbolic like what the hell is this and yeah. then they describe how a uh, parent can kind of like see in the dark um and he realizes mm -hmm. that he oh, has yeah. more wolf powers and he so that's why he tells Egwene like oh i felt it like i could just tell just innately mm. tell i can recognize what a giant rock hand feels like <laughs> just from feeling it um so that i glazed over that huh. yeah i was wondering about uh that because um i was wondering is he sharing dreams with the wolves there was something that was said yep. that i was like okay so he's not having the dreams that he had with rand and matt he's now mm -hmm. having wolf dreams um so i think like I'm enjoying the parent chapters because we've kind of seen all of the other stuff play out, but it's not often that a character mm -hmm. learns that they're like, 
potentially part wolf or something. Yeah. And uh, I had almost completely forgotten, like, I, like that I, I felt, speaking of, the, again, the same the same morning for animal violence uh, with, with Hopper, where, para, where Hopper, like, sort of leaps in to save them from the white cloaks and sort of sacrifices himself, telling, telling Perrin and Egwene to run. And Perrin very vividly, vicariously experiences all of Hopper's sensations, including like as he's like tasting the blood that he's ripping out of white cloak throats and as he's dying, like all the wounds being inflicted upon him. And it's sort of, that's like Perrin sort of of goes berserk and, and then goes unconscious when something smashes him in the head. He's like completely given over to this attack alongside the wolves and feeling kind of one with them and, and Hopper is the cub who we learned you know really named we learned before he was named that because he watched eagles uh, soar and he wanted so badly to be able to fly and to jump around which is like a very cute reminder in a <laughs> grisly death scene uh, yeah. to be feeling a bit for this wolf that we've barely known yeah and I I'm still maybe I'm just like too excited hoping that this will happen but so they say that Elias's eyes are yellow and so I was mm-hmm. wondering like are parents eyes eventually going to come yellow like the longer that he stays mm-hmm. with the wolves because like like, I really, really want Elias to be a werewolf, and I really I don't think that's what it is, but I really want him to be a werewolf, so I was hoping that, like, the longer you spend with the wolves, if you have the ability to, like, talk to them and all that, that you can, like, you'll start to become them. Um, but I did think it was interesting, you know, going back to uh, Bornhold, that he was saying, well, like, the wolves are bad because didn't you notice that some of the Trollocs have, like, wolf mu- muzzles? Yeah. Um, and so I'm also kind of hoping that this is like a um, Dr. Moreau thing <laughs> that mm-hmm. like somehow wolves do have this crazy power and that like previous bad guy had experimented to create the Trolloc. Um, mm. And maybe that's why. The oh, wolves... like maybe maybe they are made out of Wolf Brothers. Yeah. Kind of and like thing, maybe or... that's why they're, they the wolves don't like the Trollocs, like because they're like yeah. demonized, bastardized versions of them. I don't know. Maybe I, I'm looking for connections where there aren't any <laughs> and missing the ones that there are. I don't know. That's I mean, it seems really likely uh, as a connection, especially given the Fellowship of the Rings thing and the whole Lord of the Rings things where orcs are, well, they're given a couple different origins, but one of them is that the orcs are twisted elves and that's why they hate elves so much. And that's why elves are repulsed by them because the Dark Lord took elves and then um, took all their best features and twisted them into these creatures of shadow. Uh, so I, I don't know. I feel like you, you've had you've had, you've had some very good and successful guesses and predictions so far. So I, would, <laughs> I wouldn't write off your instincts on on any of these. We'll we'll find out next time, folks. We'll be reading chapters thirty one to thirty five, where we'll learn what's become of Matt and Rand now that they've lost all their guardians and they're forced to fare against the dark on their own. Exciting news that I mentioned at the top of the podcast: it our first Patreon bonus episode has gone live by the time you're hearing this. If you want to hear us talk about Frank Herbert's Dune, David Lynch's Dune, and most of all the brand new Denis Villeneuve Dune Part 1, subscribe to our Patreon at the $5 Tar Valentier. It's a fun conversation you can be a part of as a thank you for your support. And it's the first of many similarly fun bonusodes to come. Now, something else exciting will have happened by the time of our next episode. The first two episodes of the Wheel of Time TV show will have premiered on Amazon. It's already here. Holy cow, that date snuck up on us quickly. Depending on recording day logistics and whether we all get the chance to see it in time, uh, maybe uh, maybe um, after the episode after the next one where we talk about the TV show, uh, which would be just a, you know a, 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 about a short two weeks from now. This episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me at twitter.com slash Caleb Wimble. Keely, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, Instagram and Twitter at Keely underscore 
And remember, you can find us all at Wattcast.net if you forget any of those URLs. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Wattcast Podcast. And another great way you can support the show is by leaving Wattcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. This really does help a lot. Number two way we find new listeners. The number one way, though, nothing comes close. Tell a friend about the show. Uh, tweet about us. Share a, an episode that you really like. Maybe this episode on Facebook or on Instagram or anywhere else. Word of mouth means the world to us. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, folks. And remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time, but this is an ending. Farewell. Farewell.